Broadcasting while quarantine in Southern California. This is Campus Church Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 58, Bart Ehrman versus Jesus' burial, part two. So bearing precious seed in his hand, hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Welcome, everybody, to the Campus Church Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism and, I suppose, maybe a little bit more apologetics, as that's been much of the focus, especially as I have unfortunately not been allowed to be out on campus as everybody is on lockdown. Um, so uh, we're, we're going through Bart Ehrman's arguments against uh, basically the historicity of the burial, and then from there, the resurrection. Bart would assent that he historically... The most likely thing is that he was crucified. So we're going to look at uh, his arguments against the burial of Jesus. Last week we looked at the idea that uh, he thought the scriptures were internally inconsistent. Uh, The week prior to that we looked at his concept of historicity and how he kind of wanted to suggest that, oh, people just want to say I have non-religious presuppositions, and then he ends up admitting that he has all sorts of presuppositions. Um, And they are. They're inescapable. And how you're approaching history is going to tie into uh, obviously, your philosophy of reality. So if there is no God, obviously, you won't be able to find God in history. And if there are no angels, there will be no account of angels in history. And anything that you come up with will have to kind of have a naturalistic uh, approach. And that's kind of what Bart Ehrman has. And so uh, we're kind of looking at that. And, but one of the things uh, I think he does that's pretty clever in that context, he does two things. He offers up an internal critique of Christianity, that the Gospels and Paul's account of the burial of Jesus are not necessarily consistent or don't fill out the whole picture. And then he wants to suggest that they need the burial of Jesus in order to get to the resurrection. And then uh, he wants to argue against, obviously, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, at least from a historian. He acts like, oh, as an historian, we can't, uh, you know, determine uh, whether he did or didn't. But the evidence suggests that he didn't and the reasons why. Uh, So we're going to look at uh, that, uh, his resurrection next week. And it might be a two-part thing. Yeah, it'll probably be two weeks. But um, we're going to look at that. But over the weekend, I did binge watch uh, Waco. And if you have not uh, paid much attention to Waco um, there is a good documentary, decent documentary on Netflix called Waco. I believe it's six part. Each part is about 50 minutes long. And Waco, as well as Ruby Ridge, were kind of watershed moments for me when I was in high school. Uh, the Ruby Ridge incident occurred, I believe, in August of 92, which was me entering my senior year of high school. And the first time I heard of Ruby Ridge was actually listening to a guy named Paul Harvey. And if you've never heard Paul Harvey, you're missing out. Uh, He was kind of a previous generation, and he mainly makes me think of being in the car with my parents, and I felt like my mom would listen to him every morning, and he'd uh, start off with, good morning, Americans, and then he'd kind of give two things. He'd have the news hour, then he had the rest of the story, and the rest of the story was where he'd uh, go through somebody's life, uh, let's say like Abe Lincoln, and he'll pick out some strange feature and you know, say, and that's how he became Abe Lincoln, and now you know the rest of the story. But he was always, uh, he had a really good radio voice, very engaging, and I always enjoyed listening to him. But he was one of the first people that I heard mention uh, Ruby Ridge and the standoff. And so from there, I had, a, you know, there was no internet. And I, at that point, there was, I guess there was CNN, but I don't really remember me tuning into CNN that much at that point. And also it was the summer. So uh, the, the nature of summer back in 1992, you were not really on a computer. You may have been playing a little Sega or Nintendo. Um, maybe you had a beeper, but you had no cell phones and everything else. So I was probably hanging out with my friends, riding motorcycles and uh, stuff like that. But then uh, 
about eight months later, a little less than that, I think it was February, I was coming home from a ski trip on a Sunday night when the Waco standoff uh, began to happen. I was glued to the set. And very early on, I was, you know, I was an American and sympathetic to whatever our government did and thought it was fine. Even though uh, Ruby Ridge was a little bit of a wake up, I didn't know what to make of it because, you know, they just kept identifying Randy Weaver as a white separatist and a racist and a white supremacist. And who wants to defend a racist and a Nazi and a white supremacist? And uh, so even though I was kind of sympathetic and to, you know, a guy living on a hill in northern Idaho, uh, I, I was definitely accepting the idea, well, here, here he is, a racist and living on the side of a hill. Uh, he must be crazy. So, you know, probably deserved it is a little bit of my thinking at that time even though even though I was kind of like skittish on it I just felt like that's what I had to accept uh, then Waco happens and when Waco happens uh, I was just glued to the TV uh, I remember coming home Sunday night a ski trip and just watching to probably like maybe one o'clock in the morning I felt like CNN I think at the time was probably the only 24-hour news network and I just listened over and over whatever they had to say and I paid attention I come home from school turn on the TV and I remember coming home from school when the uh, when it got burned up and seeing seeing it on TV and that was just kind of water and again I was kind of like oh well he's a pedophile he thinks he's a messiah and I was a little bit sympathetic to the government's cause but in that process there was a man named Jerry Spence and Jerry Spence is a well-known attorney who I don't believe has ever lost a case and if you google him he's now maybe 90 91 years old but he's just kind of a famous attorney that's often defended uh, the little people. And the thing that's kind of interesting in all this, when you start to really pay attention to a lot of it, you can see where there are strands of libertarian thinking, which would be kind of mine and anti-government thinking, uh, that kind of brushes on similarities with strands of critical theory, um, if you're familiar with that. And oftentimes they're critiques of power. And they spend a lot of time critiquing power. And as a libertarian, uh, there's certain strands of things where you critique power. And so you'd see where the two can kind of bend and meet, and you kind of get like a little bit of a strange dynamic going on. And so Jerry Spence, to my knowledge, I would, I'd probably consider him maybe left-wing. But I remember listening to an interview with him on CNN, and he was basically defending Randy Weaver and Koresh in terms of – they're the little guys, and the government has the ability to demonize whoever they want. So the government stands up on TV, and they say, Randy Reaver's a racist, Randy Reaver is a white supremacist, Randy Weaver, blah, blah, blah. And the general zeitgeist is to not feel sympathy towards a white supremacist and a Nazi, but to be like, oh, well, there's the bad guy. And then take, you know, kind of a, at the time, America was a bit more Christian, I felt like, um, and so you take David Crash and you have a you know the government coming out saying he thinks he's the Messiah he thinks he's the Messiah and you know the the Christian disposition was well if he thinks that he's wrong on that so uh, you'd have a tendency not to feel sympathetic and I can't remember exactly how he phrased it it's one of those things I wish I had recorded but he made a comment to the effect that uh, basically the government gets to set the narrative because they're the ones in power they're the ones controlling the media and Randy Weaver has no presence in the media the Branch Davidians have no uh, presence in the media and they have no ability to tell their side of the story and that was like a lightning bolt for me at the time and I remember just thinking like man I have to actually listen to what people believe and what they say and our government's not always right and they do bad things and closely intertwined uh, with that reality uh, there was a great little clip in the Waco documentary where one of the FBI agents who they, they, they set up across the street and they're spying on Randy or on uh, the Branch Davidians um, or David Koresh and the gang. And so in spying on them, David Koresh 
uh, basically exposed, kind of knew off the bat that they were basically spying on him. And he, but he was inviting one of them in because he's like, oh, well, if, the, if God brought him to me, even if he's an FBI agent, God brought him to me. And I'm going to, you know, show him our way of life to, to the guy. And there's a scene where, uh, man, what's that guy's name? The, the, the Hispanic comedian, John Lermos, John Lagizarami. <laughs> Another actor's name I've been, uh, John Leguizio, whatever his name is. I think you might know who I'm talking about. But anyway, he makes a comment that, man, they keep saying, uh, oh, he, he makes a comment. He says, he says something like, you know, Jesus does not mean, uh, is not the same as meaning Christ, right? And the, his partner was like, what? And he goes, they keep saying that David thinks he's Jesus. He doesn't. And the uh, and the guy goes, did you say David? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, is he getting into your head? And he's like, oh, shut up. And what, one of the things you saw there that was really fascinating, now obviously we don't know that conversation exactly took place, but the thing that's interesting with that is it just kind of shows the power. I, I did an episode once on thought terminating cliches, and it kind of shows the power of that, that the narrative is David Koresh is a bad guy, and I'm not arguing that he is a good guy, uh, but the question is, did he believe he was Jesus? If the answer is no, and everyone's running around saying he thinks he's Jesus— why set that narrative up? And as Christians, as we bear witness against our neighbors, uh, we don't want to bear false witness. But one of the things that that saw me do in a very practical way, even again, even though it was a documentary and not necessarily exactly how it shook out, was the idea of thought terminating cliches. So in saying uh, David, asking the question, David, is he get into your head? The suggestion being he's a cult leader, he's the bad guy, and is he now manipulating you that you're calling him David and not Jesus? And and I was able just to shut down the conversation because the response was, oh, shut up. And so as Christians, we do not in any way, shape, or form want to be governed in that way. And the best we can, we want to bear witness against our neighbors, even wicked neighbors, honestly, because if it's truth that we're concerned with, the truth will condemn them exponentially more than our exaggeration of the truth and our manipulation of the truth in order to demonize our enemies. So no matter who it is, if you're tweeting online or if you're in a, in a genuine court case or whatever it may be, I, I just think it's vital that we as Christians bear witness and are witnesses to the truth and God is truth. And the judgment for any sin that David Koresh was involved in, and I don't know enough about him to speak intelligently, those sins are sufficient enough, and those sins may not be crimes um, in the sense that the state needs to come in and burn up, I think, 76 people in total. So uh, anyway, I'll watch that. If you have some free time, watch that. It's a pretty good uh, documentary. Uh, what I want to do today is finish up our part on the burial of Jesus, because as I've mentioned previously, it's pretty fascinating to me because uh, prior to, uh, you know, except for John Dominic Crosson, I thought everybody believed in the uh, in the burial of Jesus. Um, but more recently, Bart Ehrman has come along and has denied uh, the burial of Jesus in his book, uh, How Jesus Became God. And he basically wants to take a historical kind of anthropological perspective that Jesus started off as a prophet. And over time, it, this, this legendary tale grew into him being God. And one of the things that he raised objections with that Jesus would have been buried in a historical context. So last week we looked at the idea that he was internally inconsistent. This week we want to look at the idea of an external criticism of what's going on in the gospel narrative. So Bart Ehrman wants to say there's basically three levels of critique to the gospel narratives from an outside source. And so external to the Bible, he wants to say that Roman practice, um, well, I'll read what he says. He says, in sum, the common Roman practice was to allow the bodies 
of crucified people to decompose on the cross and be attacked by scavengers as part of the disincentive for crime. I have not run across any contrary indication in any ancient source. It is always possible that an exception was made, of course, but it must be remembered that the Christian storytellers who indicated that Jesus was an exception to the rule had an extremely compelling reason to do so. If Jesus had not been buried, his tomb uh, could not be declared empty. Uh, Secondly, he wants to say the Greco-Roman practices of using common graves. So basically what would happen instead of a a criminal being put into um, a particular grave, they would have just been kind of thrown into a a heap of bodies. So think of a plague coming through town, everybody taking all the bodies, putting them into a giant heap rather than burying each individual particularly. Uh, He'd want to say that the uh, Greek and Roman witness is that rather than particular graves, you would have had a mass grave. And a third, he wants to point out that basically that Pontius Pilate was a bad guy, and he gives a couple examples from Josephus that Pontius Pilate was a bad guy. And because Pontius Pilate was a bad guy, the idea that he would have let him go, uh, he wants to say, is historically untenable. However, the problem with Bart Ehrman's argument is that he simply uh, does not have uh, really much historical uh, backing for the things that he's saying. And one of the rhetorical things that's interesting that he does, is he will claim, he'll often say something like, uh, the Christian apologist will say, as if, you know, the Christian apologist is pulling out of his back pocket, like, um, and, and, or up his sleeve, and just kind of making it up on the spot in order to respond to these devastating historical critiques that Bart or somebody else is offering up. But the reality of it is, Bart Ehrman, even in his book, he's being rather selective in the historical evidence that he's looking at or not looking at. And I think that's kind of vital for several things. So first of all, regarding the idea that Romans would have just left everybody up on the cross uh, to be eaten by scavengers, I I don't think it's historically accurate for several reasons. Evans says this. He says, the discovery in 1968, so when Bart Ehrman wants to say that he has no contrary evidence that people were taken down from the cross, but rather left up to be eaten by birds or scavengers in some regard, uh, simply as inaccurate. And uh, and even though at this time, I don't believe that Craig Evans is responding particularly to uh, Bart Ehrman, it, it still applies. It says, the discovery in 1968 of an ossuary um, of one Yehohanan, who had been crucified, provides archaeological evidence and illumination on how Jesus himself may have been crucified. The ossuary and its contents date to the late 20s common era, or uh, AD, that is, during the administration of Pilate. The remains of an iron spike are plainly seen piercing the right heel bone. Those who took down the body of Yehohanan Yehohanan apparently were unable to remove the spike with the result that a piece of wood from an olive tree remained affixed to the spike. Later, the skeletal remains of the body, spike, fragment of wood, and all were were placed in an ossuary. Forensic examination of the rest of the skeletal remains supports the view that Yehohanan was crucified with arms apart, hung from a horizontal beam or tree branch. However, there's no evidence that he was actually nailed through the wrists or the hands. Um, etc. So the idea that we literally have bones of a crucified person from the time of Pontius Pilate whose bones are in an ossuary shows and what would have happened was the person would have been buried and probably about a year later um, the family would have gathered uh, the remains, the decomposed remains and put them in an ossuary is what would have happened. So the person would have been buried and then a year later they would have come back and and taken the bones and put them in that way. So what we do have is a very Uh, explicit historical instance of it happening that 
uh, here's a crucified man whose bones remain from the time of Pilate and from all evidences would have been indicated that he uh, had been buried. Uh, the other idea is that there is a Roman law uh, called the digesta. And in the digesta, um, again, this is stolen from Craig Evans or borrowed from Craig Evans. Um, he, he points this out. He says, even Roman justice outside the Jewish setting. So again, last week, we kind of looked at the basic idea that the Jews would have desired uh, to bury Jesus. And we, we find that in Josephus. We find that in Philo. We find that in the Old Testament. So even those Jews who would have opposed him would have desired to take him down, even if he was crucified as a common criminal. Uh, that would have been one of the, the things that Jews wanted to do. And so Evans ends up saying, even Roman justice outside the Jewish setting sometimes sometimes permitted the crucified to be taken down and buried. We find in summary of Roman law, aka digesta, the following concessions. The bodies of those who are condemned to death should not be refused their relatives. And the divine Augustus in the 10th book of his life said that this rule had been observed at present, uh, has had been observed at present, the bodies of those have been punished are only buried when this has been requested and permission granted, and sometimes it is not permitted, especially where persons have been convicted of high treason. The bodies of persons who have been punished should be given to whoever requests them for the purposes of burial. And so the basic idea there is that even during, or even Roman law, allowed individuals to come and request the body, and you even see that in the gospel accounts that uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea came to them and requested the body of Jesus, and it was granted to them. And one of the things that Ehrman wants to point out is that Pilate, who, again, we already historically have a guy, at least one guy that he allowed buried. Um, so again, it doesn't mean that it's normative. It just means that allowed it to happen. And so Ehrman wants to say that, well, Pilate was a bad guy. So he, especially in the context of the Passover and Jewish revolt, um, Pilate would have wanted to all the more humiliate Jesus in front of the crowds to let everybody there at the Passover know that, uh, you know, there's no hope for insurrection. Uh, and I guess the, the, the question historically, which, which way would you want to go? In a relative peacetime, would the Roman Empire want to stoke the flames of war uh, with Jews uh, by, you know, keeping Jesus up over uh, on the cross, over Passover and over the Sabbath, or would it have been likely that he would have wanted to take him down? And so, you know, you can go back and forth on that issue, but everyone wants to suggest that the, the only reasonable explanation in the context of the Passover is that he would not have wanted to take him down. Uh, whereas I think in the context of peacetime Israel, uh, the idea of stoking flames of animosity and stirring people up who might have the idea of conflict, and going back to the Waco idea, in 19, so from 90 three to like 95 I don't remember the exact numbers but there was a growth of what of like basically the paramilitary so Waco happens and all these people uh join kind of paramilitary groups around the United States in Alabama and uh Michigan had big ones Missouri also had one that I'm aware of and I, I can't remember the exact numbers but basically they grew exponentially which led to uh the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, I believe it was, with Timothy McVeigh. And so the government's actions in Waco was directly correlated with McVeigh's actions in uh, Oklahoma City. He wanted to revenge and basically blood for blood. And so there was a period there where basically when, when there were kind of standoff she type situations, the government was a little bit more quick to back down. And then you have this incident a few years ago, uh, the Bundy Ranch incident in, I believe it's Utah. I can't remember if it's Utah or Nevada. And they were basically were having a standoff with the government. And a bunch of people show up with guns and like, hey, we're ready to, you know, we'll, we'll fire if the uh, uh, land bureau tries to take their land or arrest Bundy. And, and so 
so the question becomes this, you know, in a similar parallel type of way, the actions of what happened by stoking the flames after Waco did make the U.S. government adjust some of the ways, not all the time, but some of the ways they approach different situations and standoffs, especially with perceived things that would have stoked uh, paramilitary type movements. And so the question is, what would Pilot have been doing uh, in the 30s? Would he have wanted to stoke the flames or would he want to, uh, in peacetime, not stoke the flames? I think from my perspective, the idea that we already have a body from the 20s from Pilot, it's not unreasonable that he would have uh, taken the body down and allow him to have been buried. Uh, and then also just from a prima facie acceptability, if we're in a historical context, and let's just say we're in a context where uh, the, the, we would have never ever buried the Davidians in our context, we would have just you know, not taken their bodies out, we would have just salted the field and you know, say put cement over it. Now, if we started running around saying that all those people received the proper burial, or that at least David Koresh received the proper burial, um, that would be very unlikely that our culture would accept that phenomena. So if what the gospel writers are saying in the first century is utterly contrary, and what you do have is during the Jewish war and revolt is just Jew upon Jew being crucified and being left uh, in that way. So in a time of war, uh, they, the, the, the Romans definitely just let the bodies stay up, even if Jews wanted to take them down. Um, and, and so you just got, I, I think the reality of Allowing uh, allowing them to take the body of Jesus down is quite reasonable, opposed to being unreasonable. And if we're making up a story that's utterly contrary to our customs, and we're saying, you know, I don't know, what, I can't think of a good one off the cuff, but that, that Donald Trump let us do X, you know, he let us take the the body of David Crash and bury him, even though what we always do is just kind of you know cement over wherever the the conflict was. It. it historically and contextually, it would not be very acceptable. So even from a prima facie acceptability, if we were having a guy being guillotined and then uh, being properly buried and our culture does not guillotine and our culture would not have allowed a proper burial, it would seem very unlikely that that's where we'd want to start a religious conviction. However, if there is a context where it would have been mildly acceptable and at times given uh, by pilot or governor to allow a Jew to be properly buried, um, then at that point it would not be completely unreasonable to our audience that we're preaching that. And so, uh, and then also the other thing I think is kind of important and I was thinking about this more, and there, I think there probably are theological reasons uh, for a burial. Um, but I was thinking about it. If you think of the cross and the humiliation that the cross was, the idea that Jesus would have been thrown into a common grave, and I need to think this through more, so you're, you're getting a little bit more of me thinking out loud, would be scandalous, but how much more scandalous would a common grave be over the uh, the cross. I don't think you get more scandalous that if, if he was buried in a common grave. Now, obviously, being eaten by buzzards uh, changes the narrative quite a bit. Uh, but if he was just taken down and thrown into a common grave, um, again, I, I think if the church was making something up, and that was very common, just as they were able to kind of redeem the cross in a way, I think they would have been able to redeem a common grave. Um, so again, I, I got to think about that more. But off the cuff, 
if I'm standing there in the first century and I already have my Messiah being crucified, I feel like the idea, and that's why I've really been thinking about, like, is there a theological reason? So when Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says he was uh, died for our sins according to the scriptures, he was buried, but it doesn't say according to the scriptures. He was raised up on the third day according to the scriptures. Why wouldn't a common grave allow for a resurrection either? But again, I, I don't believe that in any way, shape, or form. I believe he was where, uh, buried as the Gospels uh, report and as uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the early creed reports, um, but in its historical context, I see no reason why they would have to make up a burial other than the most reasonable thing is, in its historical context, it would have been very reasonable for all of them to believe that he could have been buried. So anyway, that's this episode of the Campus Future Podcast. I've gone a little longer than I would have wanted to go, but hopefully that is somewhat helpful. It gives you a few things to think about when it comes to the burial of Jesus and that you know we do have an historical faith. And that's one of the things I think is vitally important, um, that Jesus was a real flesh and blood man. He was really crucified under Pontius Pilate. He really lived. He was really resurrected. He really spent 40 days talking to people. 50 days later, he really gave the Holy Spirit. Um, these are real flesh and blood things. And so even First John tells us uh, the things which we have seen and heard with our own eyes. Um, I mean, that we have a fleshy religion. We're not an ideology. We're not just Calvinism that's an abstract ideology. We have a God that became man and dwelt among us and was really crucified. And so we should be able to do good history. And we understand that Bart Ehrman has his presuppositions and, you know, don't need to go down that rabbit trail. Um, but we're seeking to do history, and our faith is rooted in history. And if it's not, then obviously— Christ has not been risen from the dead, but he has been risen from the dead. So that's this episode of the Campus Preacher Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me, Keith, at Campus Preacher on the Twitter, Campus Evangel, and Campus Preacher on Instagram, Keith Carroll on the Facebook. Lord bless you. Hoping I hope that he might see it grow. Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom. He runs on his way, there's no time to be going slow. Hurry, take what you've got, do with it what you